Thanks for being here tonight, guys. My name is Nate Morgan, and I'm on staff here. Um, I get the joy of serving with the uh, city groups. So um, if this is your first night, first time here, or if you've been coming for a little while and you haven't got connected to one yet, um, I just have to warn you, I might hunt you down at the end of this gathering. So uh, no, but tonight I get the pleasure of preaching from God's Word um, on this Good Friday. And if you have a Bible, I would love to invite you to turn to 1 Peter 2, verses 21 through 25. That's where we're going to spend most of our night. Um, And as you turn there, I have a question for you to think about. When is the last time someone um, wrongly accused you of something? When's the last time someone accused you of something unjustly that you knew just wasn't true? Maybe it was a friend, maybe it was a coworker, maybe it was a spouse. Well, I don't know about you guys and how you respond to those type of situations, but there are very few things in this life that will boil my blood quicker than being unjustly accused of something. I remember in college, I used to play this game with my, my teammates. Um, it's called Mafia. Yeah, yeah, there's some amens there. Um, and in Mafia, essentially, the general like, premise of the game is everyone's trying to figure out who the Mafia is and vote them out. But the Mafia's goal is to try to take everyone else out before they get found out. And I was playing this one time, and our coaches decided to play with us. And I have this one coach. His name's Cody. He's about 5'5", five five and just a ball of fire. Um, and we were playing, and he, he was getting accused of being mafia. And you could just see the tension in his face building. He started just to get redder, and like his voice kind of just started to get louder and louder as he tried to defend himself. And at one point, he's standing on top of the table, screaming at people, trying to defend himself. But needless to say, he got voted out, and um, he was a little competitive. And I say that, um, I bring that up to say being falsely accused of something can be extremely frustrating and sometimes even hurtful, especially when you aren't able to defend yourself. We're here tonight to celebrate Good Friday, Good Friday, and it it really is a day that we should celebrate, but it's also a day that marks the greatest act of injustice our world has ever seen. Bear with me as I say this. It's the day that was more horrific than the genocides of World War II and more unjust than sex trafficking. The day the only perfect man to walk this earth was falsely accused and murdered. And on top of that, he was murdered for the very people he came to say. And so we have to ask ourselves, why do we call this day good? And in our passage tonight, Peter is going to answer that question. But let me pray before we jump in. Father, um, Lord, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for the day that we get to celebrate when you died the death that we deserve. Lord, on the cross, and you took our sins. Lord, you, you bore our punishment on your shoulders. Lord, I ask that tonight, um, that by your Spirit, you would help that to sink deep into our hearts. That you dying for our sin 
wouldn't just be a common phrase that we hear every so often, but would be the staple that defines our life. But Jesus, we know that only you can make that a reality in us. We ask that you would. Amen. So we're going to start out in verses 21 through 23. You can turn there in your Bible. I think it'll be up on the screen behind me. Starts with, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Our first truth tonight is Jesus suffered injustice for you to endure injustice. Jesus suffered injustice for you to endure injustice. Have you guys ever wondered why Jesus went through so much suffering before he went to the cross? Why so many beatings? Why so much pain? Why so much persecution? Why not just get on the cross and get it over with? Leading up to the cross, the scene that's particularly disturbing for me is when Jesus is in front of the 600 governor's guards. Matthew recounts it in chapter 27, verses 27 through 33, but essentially what happens is Jesus is in front of this group of 600 soldiers, and I want you, to, I want you guys to take a moment to picture yourself in Jesus' shoes in this situation. You're standing in front of 600 strangers. Your whole body is throbbing with pain because you were just beat beyond recognition. When a couple of guys from the crowd grab you, strip you naked, most likely laughing as they do it, and there you stand, completely exposed, as hundreds hurl insults at you. Then when it would seem like things could not possibly get any worse, a guy emerges from a crowd with, the, with a jacket in his hands, and he says, let's put a robe on this king. And as he drapes the robe over your shoulders, the crowd erupts in cheers and laughter. Remember, Jesus is not only fully God, not only fully man, but he's fully God. Remember that Jesus created the people that are beating him and mocking him. Then another guy emerges from the crowd, giggling as he says, Let's put a, what about his crown? What about his scepter? And as he places a stick in your hand and shoves a crown of thorns down into your skull, their disrespect reaches its climax as they spit in your face and mockingly kneel before you, completely oblivious to the reality that you really are their king. And that that day would not be the last day they bow before you. Isn't that horrible? And honestly, it makes my stomach feel kind of sick, just like thinking about it. This, that suffering, this is the suffering Peter is referring to when he said, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was threatened, when he was suffered, he did not threaten in return. And in verse 21, he gives us two reasons. Two reasons why he went through so much suffering. 
first one, we're going to start 21 again. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. Stop there. Underline, highlight, for you. The first reason is for you. Every ounce of physical and emotional torture he experienced, he endured it willingly for you. Let that sit in for a second. Every slap across the face, every spit in the face, every time someone drug his name through the mud, he had you and me in mind. Most of the times I think about or read about the day Jesus died on the cross, I forget that he wasn't helpless. In Matthew 26, when Jesus is being arrested, Peter steps up, tries to defend him, and we're kind of like, yeah, Peter. And Jesus turns to him and he says, don't you realize? Any moment, at any moment, I could ask my father, and he would send thousands of angels to come to my defense. Jesus willingly not only endured the cross, but also all the suffering that led up to it. And he did it for you. Jesus was not only able to escape the situation, but he was also an innocent man. He had never sinned, let alone committed a crime. He was and is perfect. Jesus was being punished for someone else's crimes. He was suffering for someone else's sin. So what does it mean when he says, for you? It means all the suffering that Jesus experienced that he didn't deserve, we do deserve. We should have been the ones stripped naked and spit on. We should have been the ones abandoned and beaten. Jesus was falsely accused as a rebel. He rightly deserved that title. We have all rebelled against God and tried to sit on the throne that belongs to him alone. But this is why Jesus came. He came to suffer in our place. And if we place our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, he has taken on every ounce of suffering that we deserve. Here's why this matters not only for our eternity, but also for our today. When difficult things come my way in life, when my world seems like it's falling apart, my knee-jerk response is to say, what am I doing wrong? There's a misplaced belief in me that believes, that thinks God must be angry with me. That says the reason I'm suffering is because I made God mad. The reason I don't have that job, the reason I'm sick right now is because God is punishing me for not listening to him. Now, does God gently discipline us as his children? Absolutely. But if we believe that Jesus has suffered in our place, we can have complete confidence that our heavenly father is never out to get us. That God doesn't look down on us with disappointment because we don't measure up. And hear me say this, if your identity is in Christ, God never has not and will not ever punish you. Because Christ has already taken all the punishment on our behalf. And we get to confidently embrace whatever this life would throw at us, knowing for certain that God is for us, and not against us. Amen? Awesome. Let's take a look at the second reason Peter gives for why Jesus endured so much suffering. Look at 21 again with me. So, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Point one, leaving you an example, so that underline, highlight, you might follow in his footsteps. 
what Peter is drawing out for us is that Jesus not only endured the punishment that we deserve, but also transforms our perspective towards unjustly suffering and how we respond to it. I'll say that again. What Peter is drawing out here for us is that Jesus not only endured the punishment for us, but also transforms our perspective towards unjustly suffering and how we respond to it. And in verses 22 and 23, he gives us an example of what that transformed perspective looks like. He says, He committed no sin, no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Two things that I think are super important for us to see in these verses is what Jesus doesn't do and what Jesus looks to. So first one, what Jesus doesn't do. Have you guys ever been in one of those situations where you know you're guilty, but you just try to stay quiet and hope no one notices? Um, and honestly, I have to admit, it happens to me more than I'd like to say. Uh, in a moment of weakness, weakness, not all the time, I will, I will be playing with my two-year-old son, and a pungent smell will come up to my nose from his dirty diaper, and rather than doing what a good dad should do is pick him up and go change him, I'll ever so quietly convince him to go play next to his mom. <laughs> um, listen, I know it's not okay. I know it's not okay. <laughs> and, I, and I confess this. I confess that to you to say... This is not what is happening with Jesus. Jesus isn't staying quiet because he knows he's guilty. Okay? Jesus is staying quiet because he knows he's innocent. And he knows that the only way for us to be declared innocent is for him to be declared guilty. Jesus came to die for us, and it's in his silence that we actually see his grace. And here's the crazy thing. He's inviting us into displaying that same grace. Every time a family member makes a side comment towards you, every time a rumor is started about you, every time a false perception is placed on you is an opportunity for you to be a billboard of God's grace. To show that you no longer need to defend or justify yourself. Because you have been fully and completely justified in Christ. Amen? The second way Jesus' example transforms how we respond to unjust suffering is it changes what we look to. Verse 23 says, Jesus entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Or in other words, Jesus was able to endure suffering because he trusted his father that his father would bring justice. That ultimately the wrong things he was experiencing would be made right. And we get to follow his lead in that. There's a good chance that many of you in this room have been mistreated in ways that most people in your life don't even know about. Jesus' example shows us that we're not alone in those experiences. We don't have to look to what we can do to make them right. We get to look to a heavenly father that sees us and trusts that one day he will make all, all the injustices we make right all the injustices we have experienced. 
And I know that can be hard. I know that can be hard to hear because we want to deliver justice. We want to see people get what they deserve. But Jesus shows us that we can trust our Father to handle it. God is just and all sin will be paid for, whether it was paid for by Jesus on the cross or judged when he returns. So why did Jesus suffer so much before he went to the cross? Because we needed him to. We needed someone to stand in our place and be punished in the way that we deserved. And as we take on Christ's identity, we get to follow in his grace-filled footsteps as we too are faced with injustice. Sweet, let's keep reading. We're going to pick it back up in verse 24. He himself, verse 24, he himself bore our sin in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. We have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The second truth our text shows us is that Jesus died unjustly so that we can live righteously. Jesus died unjustly so that we can live righteously. In these last two verses, Peter shifts from explaining why Jesus endured so much suffering before the cross to why he died on the cross. Verse 24 says, Jesus bore our sins on a tree. If you've been in church for any amount of time, there's a good chance that the phrase, Jesus died for your sins, or Jesus bore your sins on the cross, has lost some of its weight to you. I know it has for me. It's kind of like the word awesome. I think I used it earlier in the sermon. It's kind of like the word awesome, where I, I can't tell you how many times a day I use that word. I, I actually went and looked it up, and it means extremely impressive or daunting, and a synonym for it is awe-inspiring. Okay, so then I started looking back through my text messages. And this is the kind of thread that I saw. Me. Hey, man, you want to grab lunch today? Billy. Sure. Me. Awesome. (laughs) Really? Nate, you were inspired to the point of awe because he agreed to eat a meal with you? He's not even that excited about it. He said, sure. (laughs) My point, my point is words or phrases can lose their meaning or their value or their weight when we hear or use them all the time. And as I've been prepping for tonight and thinking about the phrase, Jesus bore our sins on the cross, I started wrestling with the simple but heavy reality that Jesus died for my sin. Jesus didn't die for the general idea of sin or for everybody's sin in the world. Jesus died a real death for individual sins. My sin put him on the cross. My greed My lust, my pride is what pressed down on his shoulders as he gasped for air. And my sin is what he took to the grave. The second half of verse 24 is a quote from Isaiah 53, 5. And I want to read this for you guys. Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, here it is, with his wounds, we are healed. This was written long before Jesus ever came on the scene. Sometimes I can read the Good Friday story and think, 
how could the religious leaders have been so blind? How could they have been so blind to see Jesus was standing, God himself was standing right in front of them? Or how could the Romans, how could the Romans sentence such an innocent, perfect, flawless man to such a horrific death? But these verses show us What our passage is showing us is that it wasn't the Pharisees or the Romans that killed Jesus. It was our sin. It was my rebellion that killed an innocent man. Which is the sobering bad news of the gospel. In order for you and I to live, Jesus had to die. And he actually did. Good Friday really happened But the good news is that when Jesus died, he took our sins with him. Amen? Verse 24 says, Jesus bore our sins that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. In Jesus' death, we have new life. We're no longer enslaved to our rebellion, but we are free to live a life that is pleasing to God. Notice the past tense he uses at the end of verse 24. You have been healed. Now, you will be healed, or you are being healed. You have been healed. If you are in Christ, you no longer have to carry the guilt or shame of your past sin. It's already been paid for. Sin no longer owns you or controls you. You have been freed from sin's path to destruction and welcomed into the green pastures of your good shepherd. We have been reunited with the one that loves us, guides us, and protects us. But he doesn't condemn us. All shame, all guilt, all punishment has already been paid for on the cross. We now get to humbly follow our good shepherd. And maybe you're sitting here tonight thinking, Nate, that sounds great, but honestly, it's hard for me to believe it. I know Jesus loves me. I know he died for me. But being freed from my sins sounds kind of like a myth. I feel dirty and unlovable. I so badly want to follow Jesus with everything that I have, but the thought of living to righteousness honestly just sounds overwhelming. Nate, I have sin in my life that I've never brought to God. Or maybe, maybe what you're thinking is, I have sin in my life that I'm tired of bringing to God again and again. I really don't know what to do. I want to die to sin, but sin seems so alive in me. And if that's you, can I encourage you to bring it to the feet of Jesus? Because hear me when I say this, he never gets tired of saying, I've paid for that. Or maybe you're here sitting, sitting here tonight and thinking, man, it's hard for me to believe that it was really my sin that put Jesus on the cross. Because the sin of my, that I've committed really doesn't seem that bad. Maybe hanging on to your own self-righteousness seems easier than accepting Christ's righteousness. And if that's you tonight, I'd love to challenge you to just go before Jesus and ask him, why does my sin seem so small? Why does your sacrifice seem so small to me, Jesus? I want to know. Or maybe you're here tonight and you've never repented Um, and accepted the free gift of new life in Jesus. Maybe you don't know the man that lived the life that you really couldn't live and died the death that you deserve. And if that's you tonight, I'd love to invite you into taking that step of faith tonight 
and asking Jesus to be your Lord and your Savior. Here in a minute, I'm going to pray, and we're going to have a time of response. Steve's going to come up here and sing a song. And as he does, I would love to invite you to stay seated and to respond to the good news that Jesus suffered and died for you. And if there's sin in your life, just like I had mentioned, that you either have never brought before God or you're tired of bringing before God, there's a piece of paper underneath your seat. And I'd love to invite you to take out that piece of paper and write that sin down. Because after we sing the song, after Steve finishes his song, we're going to take communion together. We're going to partake in the physical um, remembrance of that Jesus really, that his real blood was spilt and that his real body was broken. And as we do that, I would love, love to invite you. We're going to have a cross right here. And as we do that, I'd love to invite you to tear up that piece of paper and to drop it at the foot of the cross. Because that sin that's weighing on you, it's been paid for. That struggle, it's already been suffered for. And leaving tonight, we get a look to the cross, no longer viewing ourselves as guilty sinners, but as innocent children of the Most High God. Amen? Let's pray.